0: Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual, the podcast where we study authoritarianism and its strategies and tactics in order to better understand how to resist it. I'm Ahmed Gathnash and today I'm with Nadine Dahan, who is a Libyan journalist and independent analyst focused on Libya, and Human Rights and Transitional Justice in the Middle East and North Africa.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: So today we're talking about Libya, a topic and a country which doesn't come up often on the podcast. Mm -hmm. So few people tend to watch it because it's a relatively small country, population of only six and a half million. And it's been isolated from most of the rest of the Middle East, let alone the rest of the world for a long time. So there don't tend to be very many experts um, on the country i'm going to give a quick recap um, for people who basically haven't been watching in the last few years because a lot has happened and then we'll get into the discussion so as everyone knows the revolution happened in 2011 and the 42 year rule of muammar al gaddafi was ended that took place with help from a nato military intervention which consisted of air support and air strikes and after that, a transitional government was set up in order to move the country towards democracy. It didn't go well. By 2012, we'd already had our second transitional prime minister, Abdelrahim al-Rahim al-Kib, and he'd committed the first major failure of the transition. He came to the choice of disarming the militias who had fought Gaddafi, trying to co-opt them into his own structures and use them. Um, And he took the easy choice, unfortunately. Rather than institute large-scale arms buybacks, as many people urged at the time, he decided to bring the militias in and try to control them. He put them on government payrolls um, and gave them legitimacy, which uh, Libya is still suffering from today, as we'll see. In mid-2012, Libya hosted its first free elections for the GNC, the General National Congress, which was a body set up to have an 18-month timeline to continue the, the transition. That timeline also didn't go well. One of the major things that happened and the, the second major crisis was the political isolation law. Um, this was a law which sought to strip anybody who had been seen as working for or with the Gaddafi regime in any capacity at any point to remove them from the political process and strip all power from them. And it was phrased in such a way and presented in such a way that it was seen to be targeting specific figures in in particular, um, mainly expatriates and the heads of liberal or non-Islamist parties. And that was very polarizing. Ultimately, the law passed. Um, Armed militiamen stormed several government ministries and also besieged and shut down GNC itself and demanded the law's passage effectively at gunpoint. So the transition wasn't going well. Um, The GNC were also seen as very ideological. Um, There was a a strong representation of Islamist-leaning parties, and they began to make laws uh, enforcing things like gender segregation. Um, By 2013, December 2013, when they were meant to be winding down and um, implementing the next round of elections to bring in the next body to oversee the next stage of the transition to a functioning democratic state, they instead unilaterally voted to extend their own power for at least one year further, um, which was massively unpopular. A couple of months later, General Khalifa Haftar ordered them to dissolve. um, And we're going to spend a lot of time examining this character in a bit. Um, But he then launched Operation Karama, or Operation Dignity, uh, which he declared against extremist groups in Benghazi. And Nadine, you've researched that extensively. Can you tell me a bit more about the operation?
1: Yeah, so in May 2014, just a couple of months after Haftar had ordered the GNC to be dissolved, uh, he declared the, the Dignity Operation, or Operation Dignity, sorry. Um, and the claimed goal of that was to uh, essentially target the extremist groups that had become uh, very prevalent in Benghazi and in the East, such as Ansar sharia um, and others.
0: And at the time, um, this was this was at a time when Benghazi was basically plagued with uh, weekly, if not daily, assassinations, like every day you'd log into Facebook and, and see reports of um, a colonel has been assassinated outside his house, a general has been assassinated at Friday prayers, um, so-and-so sheikh has just been shot in like a drive-by incident, um, there was a general atmosphere of lawlessness, wasn't there?
1: Hmm. You know, yeah, uh, military uh, figures were being targeted, but as well as that, you know, there were examples of women who owned businesses who were being threatened and, and told that, you know, they shouldn't have perfume shops and, and actually some of those businesses um, bombed by these extremist groups. And so like, the effect of, of these groups was, was definitely devastating on, on the city and, and the region as a whole, the region of, of the country. But I think it's interesting that, as is common in counterterrorism discussions often, that um, the Operation Dignity, whilst claiming to target these terrorists and extremists, was actually also targeting at the same time civilians that were critical of the operation, um, civilians and activists that were critical of uh, abuses that were being carried out by Dignity Operation fighters. You know, so so it became, I think at the start, it's safe to say that a lot of Libyans were supportive of the operation. However, as time went on and it became clear that, you know, it it wasn't just about countering terrorism and it wasn't just about rooting out extremism, Um, Libyans who, who were supportive changed their minds and became quite critical. And it was people like that in Benghazi who were receiving threats who uh, were being told that their family would be targeted, that they they would be sort of at risk of X, Y, and Z if they didn't stop posting about things on social media and things like that. Do you
0: have any uh, examples of people that were targeted?
1: A very sad story, actually, that um, I've been researching recently. I can't mention the name uh, of the victim because of the family's wishes. A man in Benghazi who uh, was appointed as a representative of, of a ministry Uh, affiliated with the GNA, the Government of National Accord in Tripoli, was repeatedly approached and threatened by members of Haftar's Operation Dignity, who wanted him to use his position to provide them uh, with funding. How did they expect him to do that? So being a representative of a ministry in the region, he was responsible for managing certain projects. He was responsible for distributing the budget that he had between like different priorities in in the city and rebuilding the structures that had been uh, ironically broken down by those very same uh, members of Haftar's Operation Dignity. Yeah,
0: what we haven't mentioned is that the operation resulted in the wholesale destruction of very significant chunks of the city.
1: Yeah. Um, and so with this budget, he quite straightforwardly, would put a certain budget aside for a particular project. The government in Tripoli would provide this budget for this project. Um, but the militias that approached and threatened him would ask him or demand that he put the number on the on the sheets that he fills out slightly higher. So common practice, I think, even back in, in Gaddafi's days, a project that would cost 10,000 dinars or 20,000 dinars or 500,000 dinars, the number on it would be doubled, only the half would be used, uh, and the other half would go into the pockets of these people that were threatening him and his family.
0: Very bog-standard graft.
1: Exactly. Um, And so after a while of having to deal with this uh, on a regular basis, whilst he didn't bring it up with his superiors and he didn't actually rat on these militias, he did decide that he'd had enough. Went to Tripoli, handed in his resignation, Told them that, you know, he's getting old. He wants to spend time with his family. He's he's not cut out for this anymore. Gave over the relevant paperwork, gave a little handover, and went back to Ben Razi. And when he went back, within a couple of days, he'd been kidnapped from his farm, a little bit further out from the city. So he was uh, he was there with his sons, and then his sons left him and. Couple of hours later, his their, their father still hadn't arrived home, and so they went to look for him to make sure, you know, that he was okay, that he hadn't slipped and, and hurt himself or something like that. And they went and they found his car was still parked there, his belongings were still there, all valuables, his wallet was still in the car, his watch. So it, you know, clearly wasn't a robbery or anything like that, but he had disappeared, and they didn't know where he was for just over a year, and then a month or so ago. Um, they were contacted by police in Benghazi who told them that their uncle uh, their uncle's body had been found. I think they'd contacted a man's, the man's nephew, said that his uncle's body had been found, and that they found the person who killed him and it was a robbery, and he's Egyptian, and they pinned it on this on this man. Uh, and yeah, you can't have a burial or anything. And that's it. End of story. Case closed. Case closed. And you know, his family was fully aware of the threats that he was receiving, like prior to his kidnapping. He, they were fully aware of, you know, all of the difficulties that he was having fulfilling this job. Uh, and so it was, it was very obvious what, um, what had happened. But because of the situation in in Benghazi now, this I'm talking about, you know, a month ago, maybe less, a few weeks ago, um, that this happened. You, you cannot challenge the narrative that, has, that is being provided. Because and there's,
0: there's nobody for them to go to.
1: There's nobody for them to go to, exactly.
0: So, uh, by the way, you found the body. You can't have it, but we're confirming that it was a robbery. We found the guy who did it and we've got him. Don't worry, case closed.
1: Yeah, and you know his car was left, his wallet was left, his watch was left. Still, somehow, it's a robbery.
0: And this story is unfolding basically daily, on a daily basis across exactly. Libya. Absolutely. And
1: I um, mean, even on a smaller scale, um, people just... Who are generally critical of of what's going on, critical particularly in the past couple of years after abuses by Haftar's forces have emerged in in places like Derna and places like Benghazi, criticism has obviously increased. And as those criticisms have increased, threats against teens who maybe use use social media and post on Facebook or Twitter to to criticize um, the the military operation are ending up, you know, being picked up and Slapped around a bit and told to keep their mouths shut, or their houses are being knocked on and their families being threatened, um, and and so you know it's it's every day, and yeah. even now. You it's, know,
0: it's a growing culture of impunity.
1: Absolutely, five um, years on.
0: So I'll I'll get back to the narrative and then we'll come back to Haftar, um, but so in February 2014 he ordered the GNC to dissolve. Um, This guy is uh, a military leader ordering the the elected governmental body to dissolve itself, even though it's having a crisis of legitimacy. And then a few months later, he unilaterally starts a military operation, um, effectively declaring himself to be his own highest authority. In June, the elections which had been promised finally took place due to pressure on the GNC. So. they organised the election of the House of Representatives, um, and in that election, the Islamist leading parties were thrashed. Um, they they lost massively, and they were far less well represented than they had been in the GNC. The next month, in July, Operation Libya Dawn Fajr Libya) started in western Libya in response to Operation Dignity by GNC-aligned and Islamist-aligned groups and militias. Um, shortly afterwards. A small minority of the original GNC returned, staffed mostly by members of the defeated Islamist parties, and they announced that they were creating a salvation government. The House of Representatives, uh, a minority of them fled to the east of the country, citing security reasons. Um, Obviously, you can see some political maneuverings behind it as well, I guess. But this split them into two camps. Um, Some of those who remained in Tripoli um, and were opposed to Haftar in principle resigned. And then in November, the High Court of Libya ruled that the House of Representatives election had been invalidated by their relocation to the east, which was also seen as highly politicized. It's this recurring theme of um, heavy militia influence, which um, was cited again in in the High Court's decision. Um, Many people basically saw this as a coup against the elected government um, and being carried out through the high court through militia pressure and refused to accept it. More House of Representatives members followed to the east and, you know, a full blown crisis began.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting because um, obviously the House of Representatives, which, as you mentioned, was elected, their, their decision to move to the east to part of the country where... Haftar and his forces were, you know, sort of clearly the ones calling the shots, were clearly the ones that they expected would protect them. That in itself was a political decision. And I think you've mentioned that everything was seen, uh, everything at the time was seen as very politicized. But the idea that, you know, an elected body that's supposed to be sort of governing the country decides to pick up and leave the capital. And base itself somewhere else under, you know, sort of the protection of a, of a, as you mentioned, a self-appointed military leader, was a very political decision. And I think, you know, the confusion at the time of what was going on and who was backing who and it was just like a microcosm of the mass confusion that the citizenship must have been. Experiencing,
0: hmm. I think I'm more sympathetic to the the security citations than you are. But this basically illustrates how how confusing matters are. Um, I think from my perspective, I can see how you know they've just watched their predecessor, um, the GNC, get forced down the barrel of a gun to pass a law that they didn't want to pass. Um, and you know, if you're a legislator in that body, you're basically thinking. Um, I'm just a pawn for militias. You know, I can't. I can't make legislation if this is how it works.
1: Yeah, but then so you can, decide to be a pawn for.
0: Yeah, That's so I, I can see why they'd want to move, but they they unfortunately moved to the side of the country in which there was an even bigger warlord rather than a bunch of militias running around. At that point, um, after the high court ruled that they were unconstitutional, um, I think the majority of the House of Representatives then followed and relocated to the East. It was, it was chaos. And I think initially they were they were all based on a ferry off the coast of Tobruk because they couldn't find a building big enough to, to host them. Um, by the end of the year, basically all remaining House of Representatives members were in Eastern Libya. And there were now two rival parliaments active in the country. In December, 2015, after long negotiations and a protracted crisis, The Libyan political agreement was signed at a conference abroad uh, hosted, organized by the UN, uh, in which, theoretically, the signatory parties created a national unity government, the, the GNA, the Government of National Accord. Bizarrely, as soon as it was formed, they rejected it again. So rather than the two governments being united into one, they ended up with a third government, which arrived in Tripoli in March 2016 under the protection of the French Navy. Um, ever since then, it's been effectively going around doing photo ops and pretending to be useful. Um, and Libyans widely deride it as impotent and incompetent and only existing at the behest of foreign powers. And then in 2016, depending on which way you see this, you could, you could I guess, see it as a false government because ISIS announced that they had now a state in Sirte, which had been the hometown of Gaddafi. There was uh, another military campaign there. And around the same time, Field Marshal Heftar Um, basically got the House of Representatives in his territory to promote him to general. Uh, Every Arab ruler's dream, I guess. So Haftar, interesting character, and he goes back a long way in Libya's modern history because he was actually part of the coup that brought Gaddafi to power in 1969. Um, He was one of the main officials in the army. He headed up, I think, the campaign in Chad in the 80s when uh, Libya decided to invade for reasons unknown until today. He oversaw a resounding failure in which the fairly well-equipped Libyan army was resoundingly crushed by some Chadian militias uh, on the back of pickup trucks. Um, He was taken prisoner of war, and Gaddafi basically disowned him because uh, he'd just signed some very inconvenient treaty saying he couldn't be attacking Chad. So he was just like, what? I didn't do anything. And Hafter never forgave him. Um, Basically, when he eventually became free... He didn't return to the country, he, he became an exiled uh, opposition member. Um, when the revolution happened in 2011, he came back, joined in, and eventually found a leadership position to him with a, a militia which he enterprisingly dubbed the Libyan National Army. Mm. Is it an army?
1: Is it an army? Interesting. Um, well, it's a self-declared national army. Um, I think national is a generous word to give it. I mean, it's...
0: It's an assemblement of some militias. Exactly.
1: Um, I, I, I mean, yeah, it still acts like a giant militia. It's still you know it's it, there's no sort of process of like being introduced into the army there's no discipline that you would expect from an army there's no you know you have young children as we've seen recently 15 and 16 year old boys that are being recruited um by by Operation Dignity, and who are fighting, you know, in in areas that they've grown up in, against people that they've known for their whole lives, and now suddenly they're they're taken and they're fighting in Tripoli, and and these some of these children that are being caught really have no idea like why they're fighting or what they're doing. It's it's both a mixture of indoctrination and sort of I suppose taking advantage of the vulnerabilities of people at the moment.
0: So what else would you expect from? Uh, a group that calls itself the National Army, um, that, that Haftar's forces don't fulfill?
1: Well, adherence to the Geneva Convention um, would, would be a, a good place to start. Um, I think a lot of people might be aware of Mahmoud al-Wurfali, an officer in the saqa Brigade of Haftar's forces, who uh, is wanted by the International Criminal Court. Um, multiple videos of him performing extrajudicial killings have emerged on social media.
0: This is the guy where there's basically, um, I think it's the first case that the ICC has ever prosecuted based entirely on evidence from social media. Um, And it's based on multiple videos from Facebook showing him uh, basically lining people up and shooting them in the head.
1: Yeah, so the, the warrant was issued... Uh, based on, I believe, seven pieces of separate separate pieces of uh, evidence against him, all of which were found uh, on social media, all of which were videos uh, in which we we can see Mahmoud al very performatively lining, as you said, these people up. Um, often you can't see the faces of of those that that are being killed, either their their backs are turned to the camera or they're covering their faces or heads with something and he's he on multiple occasions looks at the camera it's like you know he wants everyone to know that he will do whatever he wants he's going to sort of respond to things however he likes um
0: the impunity
1: exactly a warrant um for him has been uh outstanding for a while now and whilst the LNA claimed after the warrant was issued that he was in their custody uh, shortly afterwards, another video of him emerged again after there were bombings a- against a mosque in benrazi uh last year. And video footage emerged following those bombings of him killing some people outside that very same mosque. Um, and so clearly the LNA LNA was not taking this case very seriously and actually there have been unconfirmed reports of him being present in the west in the most current offensive as well.
0: Yeah I've seen those (laughs) um, rumours on social media until proven otherwise I guess but everything Mm -hmm. with Libya starts off as rumours on social media before it's proven. Um, So can you tell me more about Operation Dignity Um, because it started in Benghazi against these uh extremist groups, or allegedly against these extremist groups, and it quickly widened um, and extended to other cities as well.
1: Yeah, interestingly, though, um, whilst, the, like we said, obviously, Operation Dignity claimed to be uh, for the sole purpose of targeting extremists and terrorists, we've seen reports from before um, IS managed to take over sirte that militants from Benghazi... Um, uh, IS militants IS militants who were previously in Benghazi and, and nearby were allowed safe passage through areas controlled by um, Haftar's Lna before they re- even reached. Zir. So not only are they not you know fulfilling their claimed goal of of countering terrorism and and you know rooting out extremists, but they're also allowing them to wreak havoc in other parts of the country. Um but I think some examples of what Haftar has done in other parts of the country are quite telling of you know both his sort of tactics and, and aims, what he really wants to achieve. I think you could argue that this operation has actually been very successful for Haftar in in the sense that of, of how much territory he's gained, how much um more you know control he has over very strategic areas um we've seen clashes over oil ports and and things like that um and what he's done to him and his forces have done to places like Gafuda places like Derna
0: so Gafuda is a suburb in Benghazi and Derna is a city nearby in eastern libya
1: yeah yes well i think gafuda is a good place to start um as it it was prior to to derna um but i th- I spoke to someone who had family in in Ghanfouda. His name was uh, Ali Hamza uh, al was He's a Libyan from Benghazi based in in Canada. And his story was absolutely harrowing because he lost um, several members of his family in in one go, in one day. But the way he lost them and and many others were with them as well, was just it was it was a really horrifying story to listen to and report on. Um, but they were trying to flee the city. Um, the city had been besieged for a long time by Haftar's forces. Um, and they told us that um they the whole family, so his this this gentleman's mother, um who was also found killed, his brothers, his sister they were they were all attempting to flee in order to find food because they were starving and oh, I mean, how
0: long had the siege gone on?
1: The siege had been going on for just over two months at this point. So they they, they were on a bus um, of uh, around 25 civilians. They were heading north uh, in search of food and water, according um, to Ali. They were attacked by LNA forces. Um, whilst attempting to flee, and most of them were killed in cold blood. Um, And the only survivor of the attack was his sister, Ibtissam, who became one of the LNA's prisoners. They had no idea where she was taken. She was taken in an army vehicle. Pictures that they provided of of Ibtissam before and after you know you could see that the effects of the siege had really a massive effect on residents you know a lot thinner um people you, you could really tell that you know people hadn't been accessing they were starving. exactly they hadn't had access to basic necessities um and so you know 25 civilians in one go who were fleeing in an attempt to find food and water
0: after being caught up in a siege for two months
1: with Genfuda, it's slightly different to Derna. It wasn't even that Genfuda had, you know, this military might that was fighting against the LNA. There wasn't resistance in that sense. There wasn't, it was completely different. These these people, all of all of them were civilians. I mean, even if they were fighting for their own land, arguably, you know, you could criticise LNA's entry into a city anyway. But this, this is a city or a group of civilians who had nothing to do with with anything, who were targeted because of particular people who had had opposed the LNA being, you know, buried in the area or being from the area.
0: And there's a sense of real vindictiveness in that, you know, they they don't just kill people, but they often take glee at uh, retaliation against the families of people they've fought, or even the neighborhoods from which, you know, people they fought came from. Um, they take joy in retribution. Um, in exacting punishment and like you mentioned with those videos of Mahmoud al where he'd, he'd you know repeatedly look at the camera you know they get a high out of the power
1: absolutely
0: and the impunity absolutely and then that's that's basically the same thing that happened with Darna.
1: Um slightly different with Derna, but I mean same the same effect you know you had residents that were children women you had the elderly you had again, mostly civilians who were affected, that were starving, they didn't have access to medical aid. You know, you had people who had like heart problems, elderly elderly people with diabetes, basic sort of medical need, needs that weren't being fulfilled because of the siege. Human rights organisations were not being allowed into the city. Slightly different because the reason Derna was being besieged in the first place was because local... Militias or local forces refused to allow the LNA to take over control of the city, and so you had uh, the Derna Protection Forces, which I think later were renamed, um, who who were armed Dernawi people, uh, similar to any other militia, you know, in, in Libya, who opposed Haftar's, uh Operation Dignity, you know, who fought against the forces. And, and so Derna ended up being the last city in, in that area that was not controlled. In the region. Yeah, in the east that was not under Haftar's control. You could argue it became this beacon of sort of hope of resistance against Haftar's forces for a lot of people in the east who had been forced to be quiet and, and stop criticising and and not voice their concerns over the LNA. For such a long time, you know, you had around 150,000 residents who were caught in this crossfire. I spoke to residents on a number of occasions who who said, you know, our hospitals don't have oxygen tanks. We are being choked. You know, I had someone who would send me sort of pictures of the things that they would have to, they would be eating chopped tomatoes for lunch every day because they had nothing else they just had to like use what they had you had a family of four or five who was sitting around a plate of like a few tomatoes that they would chopped up and that was it all because they refused to allow have to to forcibly take over
0: the well, city well a lot of them didn't refuse anything they're just ordinary people who have no say one way or Well, other way.
1: exactly. Exactly.
0: And um, I remember Operation Dignity was launched basically with much um, celebration and fiery words, as usual, in a way similar, as we've mentioned on this podcast before, to Mohammed bin, bin Salman, who, uh, you know, the, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, who launched Operation Decisive Storm against Yemen. And, you know, it was kind of this is going to be wam bam uh, victory, came so conquered a couple of months and we're out, years later, and still dragging on. Uh, the Battle of Benghazi, Operation uh, Dignity, was kind of the same thing, that it was meant to be a very quick cleansing of Benghazi from terrorists and extremists. Um, instead, it lasted three years, until 2017. Um, I think there's been sporadic fought, fighting, breaking out, now and then, even after that. Um, masses of the city were destroyed. And then the Battle of Derna. again, it was from, I think, May last year until February long-term siege, indiscriminate shelling, which you haven't mentioned, um, on civilian neighborhoods, Um, you know, just the kind of fighting that has no regard for human life anywhere. Um, And I think that summarizes Khalifa Haftar's uh, attitude towards the country that, you know, you're either with him or against him. um, And he doesn't intend to let any kind of norms or laws stand in his way or institutions.
1: Uh, This is also a good time to mention that whilst, yes, you know, they were being sporadically attacked by air by Haftar, they were also, uh, Darna was also facing intense bombing in May 2017 um, by the Egyptian air force, who used the excuse of retaliating to attacks that had taken place in the Sinai, who allegedly uh, were orchestrated by someone with links to groups in Dharna. Um And, you know, again, this city had already been under siege uh, for a long time. And then suddenly you have the Egyptian army also chipping in. I spoke to someone who wasn't part of the Dharna Protection Forces before, but was close to them and, and sort of knew what was going on and, and was maybe helping in different ways, who said that, Anybody who tries to leave is either kidnapped or humiliated or returned and or killed. And then you've got airstrikes from above from the Egyptian army. You've got ground attacks from Haftar's army. And, you know, the city was just being choked from every single direction.
0: And uh, this is also... Since we're on the topic of Egyptian intervention, um, Haftar has uh, quickly consolidated his rule across most of Libya and closed it on the capital last week and began an offensive there. And it's important to note that this is only possible because of the extent of the international support which he has received. Um, you know, it's a, it's a long list of countries, starting with Egypt. You've got Jordan, who supplied money and possibly arms, I believe. You've got Saudi Arabia, who it was revealed a few days ago offered him money. You've got the UAE who've been offering him military equipment and planes and helicopters for several years. Also Europeans. Um, uh, Italy has welcomed him with open arms in the past. There's some quite outrageous statements by other European politicians. I think Boris Johnson um, lauded him a couple of years ago for his fight against extremism. Um, The French foreign minister, only a couple of weeks before his attack on Tripoli began, Told him that we're waiting for news of your victories, um, and France has a reputation for having, you know, really invested in Heftar quite heavily and backed him to the hilt. Um, and there's allegations that they're quite embarrassed by the fact that he's um, decided to brazenly attack the capital of the country, disregarding uh, UN brokered peace talks, which kind of shows the world that he's, you know, he he's off his leash, even if you're one of his primary international backers. He won't actually listen to you. He'll just take what you give him and then do what he wants. So he's uncontrollable. Um, Russia as well deserves a mention because, uh, they've basically kept his administration liquid by printing cash for them. So back to the, the timeline, uh, we mentioned Operation Dignity, um, the political split when the House of Representatives moved to the east of the country, you know, for fear of being forced to pass laws at gunpoint by the militias, um, and, uh, for fear of being uh, accused of uh, partisanship, I just have to mention that the same stuff was happening throughout most of this in Western Libya. Um, the difference is that rather than being consolidated under the rule of a single military leader like uh, Benghazi in the eastern half of the country, Western Libya remained a patchwork of multiple militias, each to, each to its own district or city. They would sporadically fight among themselves. They would each control institutions and organizations that were within their geographical reach. They would each, you know, levy their own taxes, they would take cuts of anything they could find, Um, they'd smuggle, they'd bribe, they'd rob, they'd enrich themselves, they'd kidnap, uh, they'd extort. A lot of people really saw it as pick your poison. You can either be ruled by 10 warlords or one. Other people uh, see it as a battle between Extremism and order, and their position is basically that you know it's either Haftar or you'll have terrorist groups like ISIS running around unchecked. Um, And to them, this is a binary, um, like you hear among many European governments that you know we either have a strong man, it's complete chaos and
1: terrorism and extremism. I think Haftar and and the LNA have demonstrated quite clearly that they aren't effectively rooting out extremism and terrorism i think to to sort of consider it a decision between Haftar despite his many flaws or being ruled by IS or being ruled by you know another extremist no,
0: brotherhood or
1: something i mean yeah it's it's not i don't think that's truly reflective of of the options libyans have mostly because like we mentioned Haftar isn't doing very well at countering terrorist groups but also haftar isn't this secular beacon of liberalism <laughs> li- exactly that um that might be sort of a, a, some hope for, for Libyans. Haftar has the support, interestingly, of madhalist Salafist uh groups he the Dar the,
0: the body which issues
1: in the East. So there's there's a Darlifta in the East backing haftar one hundred percent. It's so interesting to see, you know, these scholars Um, on TV and on, you know, channels sympathetic to to Haftar.
0: Religious scholars.
1: Religious scholars, yeah. Medhalist Salafi scholars calling for, you know, Haftar's victory and calling for support for for the operation and calling for his victory over Tripoli. This is someone who sold himself as a secular figure who is coming to get rid of religious extremists who is partnering up and and sort of has the backing and and support of other religious extremists
0: so you you use the m-word which i've seen bandied about occasionally but often hush hush and it's kind of almost taboo to discuss it a lot of people uh, i can only guess they're afraid uh what is a medhali
1: so medhalis follow the teachings of a scholar by the name of Rabi al Madkhali,
0: And this is a contemporary scholar who lives in Saudi Arabia before someone gets the idea that, you know, they're following, I don't know, some, some companion of the Prophet's teachings or something like that. Yeah. He's extremely conservative. He's, you know, of that brand of Salafi conservatives who uh, preach things like photographs of haram, religiously forbidden. Like that's, that's the end of the spectrum he's on, so you can get a picture. And he's also... Um, So he's that brand of Salafism, which is not just extremely religiously conservative, but they're as politically conservative as they get. So they preach that any form of dissent against the political authority uh, which controls where you live is absolute heresy.
1: Which I think explains why you see this trend of medkhalis in Libya, picking the strongest side and, and siding with them.
0: So in the East, they're pro Haftar and in the West, they're pro-GNA.
1: Yes, exactly. So you have in the West, for example, um, certain uh, militias that run institutions are predominantly Med Salafi um leaning, who, you know, I actually, I once was in Tripoli um, and I was coming back to the UK, uh, and I was at the airport, and I was told I was coming by myself. Bear in mind, my family had like dropped me off to the airport. Um, my, I think my mum was with me, my uncle was with me. They were just dropping me off, and and one of the people who was in charge of security at the airport, who had nothing to do, by the way, with you know my check-in process or. Uh, he wasn't there to check my passport or anything. Just saw me and came along and said to to the gentleman who was checking my passport. He said, Is "She traveling alone." Um, to which I I said, "Yeah." Um, and he said, "You can't travel by yourself." Haram. Yeah, and I said, "Uh, what?" <laughs> <laughs> and he, he stood there with this massive automatic weapon. In his military outfit, like very big beard. And he's telling me, my mum's there, my uncle's there. And he's telling me that they they can't let me go by myself, even though my mum's insisting, yeah, she's going to meet her dad. It's fine. And he just couldn't accept, like, he couldn't accept the fact that I would travel by myself. And these, again, these are people that are within militias that are aligned with the GNA.
0: And they're being, uh, because of their obedience and the the ideology of obedience they're basically being elevated to positions of authority
1: yeah and because it's in their interest to conserve the uh, legitimacy and control of these the side that they've picked essentially they're good people to have on your side you know they'll fight for you because it's in their interest that you remain in power and so it's the same with Haftar
0: so so he's basically also elevating these people in in the territories that he controls. Yeah, um, far from being secular and you know an enlightened, progressive, feminist military general, as and, you know, you would <laughs> almost believe listening to the way some people describe him.
1: Exactly, and I think as well it, his lack of concern for democracy aligns very well with their opposition to yeah,
0: which which explains elections. Um, how convenient the gulf states have seen him because um, as we've seen they're threatened by the idea of a successful democracy anywhere in the middle east or the arab speaking world Um, they they just see that as being a threat because it would show that democracy can be successful and they've basically pinned their hopes for survival on the idea that arab culture is somehow uh, incompatible with uh, democratic values, and therefore, to have a democratic Arab state would, you know, completely undermine them and make their people ask for the same. So they look for these people who don't have much regard for democracy and elevate them. And well, by the way, it's. Under yeah, and by the way, it's the year of tolerance in the UAE, which is uh, shipping arms on a regular basis to Haftar and backing him and and, and paying for his campaigns. So um, we we also mentioned the Libyan political agreement brokered by the UN. um, And we've just written an article which is um, critical of the international community's management of the transition in Libya. Because they basically, after overseeing the intervention, which I still personally believe was a massive success in 2011 because it prevented the kind of bloodshed that we've seen in Syria since. But they didn't follow through. And there's a great quote from Barack Obama in which he says, I had more faith in the Europeans, given Libya's proximity, being invested in the follow-up. Um, it was 2016, and he basically like summarizes the complacency of, oh, oh well, we dropped the ball, my bad guys. So um, this country has had no institutions for 42 years, the rule of Gaddafi, and suddenly people are in charge of organizing elections in you know a country that's just had a major conflict. There's no institution, there's no infrastructure to do it, and you know when things go bad. Um, how do you manage that? Well, who knows, but good luck. I believe that's one of the reasons that it became so botched and the country is a continuous turmoil today. Um, but you also have the the malicious role that other actors have played.
1: So by the time Europe's migrant crisis began in 2015, uh, Libyan, Libya's transition had already uh, arguably failed. The lack of stability in the country meant that it became a hub for human traffickers. It became uh, an important stop on migratory routes to Europe um, from all over the continent. Um, And you had European states such as Italy who were contributing to this mess. Italian government was paying, uh, according to reports, paying militias and the Libyan Coast Guard to prevent migrants from... Crossing the Mediterranean, um, which meant that often those migrants were captured by militias, captured by and um, and held in uh, detention facilities that were putting them in the most horrific um, of circumstances. You had reports of um, these detention centres and those running them torturing migrants, forcing them into labour, and the EU knew about. Them what was happening. And still some states were willing to essentially force these migrants back.
0: And they also undercut the legitimate institutions which had been set up um, by Mm. going over their heads and just dealing directly with militias.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And so you had, it was, I suppose you could say that it's two evils. One is these migrants that may or may not make it to the other side, migrants that are being um, abused by traffickers anyway that whose lives mean nothing to them who may be put on a boat traffickers know is, is going to like fail within a couple of hours uh, and on the other hand you have the coast guard and you have militias that are grabbing these these migrants mid mid travel in the middle of the, in the sea which in itself is probably an extremely scary experience and returning them at the behest of European governments to detention facilities that are already mismanaged, that are already, you know, full at times.
0: And detention facilities is is generous because often they were thrown in warehouses where there's perhaps one bathroom between 100 people, uh, no wash facilities held there for weeks on end, inadequate amounts of food, the worst kind of horrors that you can. And this is when um, stories began coming out of slavery as well.
1: Yeah. You have to remember as well that many of these facilities that were run by militias, they were actually considered official detention centres for the International Organization for Migration, the IOM. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that video that that emerged um, from Libya was, I mean, this is the perfect example of what can happen when states prefer or prioritise their own short-term security that they consider to be threatened by migration than over the security of human beings and the safety of human beings. And you have a country that is struggling in the aftermath of a massive war that can't even secure its own citizens and then providing militias and armed groups with no concern for human rights and human life with funding in order to keep people in the country is obviously going to lead to something horrific and terrible and you know Europe's complicity in these abuses has been unbelievable.
0: Yeah and um, so they basically decided you know Liberal values, that whole liberal values thing is a bit too hard. Let's just focus on counterterrorism, security and stopping migration. And then when this video of a purported slave market came out, um, European states were basically suddenly like, what? Slave markets, migrants being treated badly. Oh, my God. I didn't know this was happening in Libya. Did you know this? I didn't know this. Yeah. And and the hypocrisy was you know, really sickening. It's basically more on, on their hands than anybody else's.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In December 2017, Amnesty International released a report uh, in which they claim that European governments have continued uh, to actively support a sophisticated system of abuse and exploitation of refugees and migrants. So, you know, you had European states that knew exactly what was happening when they sent migrants back or when they paid militias to to put migrants in certain places, and they were willing to do it anyway. This complacency, like you mentioned, and this disregard for for human rights and for human dignity was no doubt a massive contributing factor to the um, abuses that continue against migrants now and, and for the past number of years.
0: And that basically brings us to where we are today. Um, the international community effectively took their eyes off the ball um, left the crisis to stew um, for several years, um, produced several unsavory results. The UN has been running a very elite-centered stabilization program which insists on getting some of the high-profile powers in the conflict and flying them around the world to hold uh, conferences and and peace talks in in, various capitals, various international cities. They had this Khirat conference in Morocco, they've had one in Tunisia, And, you know, there's like this, these repeated jokes or cynical jokes on Libyan social media of, um, you know, these guys are basically swanning around the world, um, paying thousands on luxurious hotels to sit around and do talks that none of them are actually interested or invested in whilst we starve. Um, There's been a liquidity crisis in Tripoli and most of the country for the last couple of years in which people can't withdraw money from the banks because there is no money. Um, So if you're lucky to be getting a salary because first of all, unemployment is extremely high. And secondly, many of those employed aren't being paid their salaries because um, state institutions have been insolvent. But even those being paid can't withdraw their money and they have to queue up. um, I've seen for days at a time and camp in these queues outside of banks in order to withdraw a limit of 200 dinars or something, which is something like less than $50 a month Um, because the the banks just don't have the cash to give it out. Meanwhile, there's an ongoing overall security breakdown across the country, and the story of the the chain of prime ministers kind of illustrates this in a really comical way. The country hasn't been able to keep a government together. Um, After Keeb's term ended in 2012, the second post-revolution prime minister, uh, Mustafa Abu Shagor, who was very widely respected as deputy prime minister, was nominated. Um, the GNC refused to ratify him. Um, and it was seen as, you know, fear of a strongly independent person in charge of the institutions. Then Ali Zayden was elected as prime minister at the end of 2012, but ousted by committee in early 2014, uh, which he insisted was invalid. Um, for several months before that, he'd been basically running his government from Malta and commuting into Libya, into Tripoli, and back home every day um, for security. He was kidnapped by militias twice Um, just to emphasize the prime minister of the country was kidnapped by militias twice the first in 2013 whilst he was still in office and he was only held for a few hours before he was released the second was in 2017 um when the then former prime minister um, basically images went viral on libyan social media of him being dragged out of a, a hotel in tripoli in his pajamas by a militia uh, and he was held by them for eight days, painfully demonstrating that, you know, governments have no power in the country and it's militias who rule it. Um, and, you know, it's a total case study and impunity. If it's that dangerous that even prime ministers are getting kidnapped, imagine what it's like for the ordinary citizen in Benghazi or Tripoli. Um, you know, stories abound on a daily basis of people not making it home, people being carjacked, People being carjacked by groups masquerading as official institutions, people being shot in the street, people being held for ransom from their families because they've heard, you know, one of their family members is abroad working in the UK or America, so he must be loaded. Um, and when the government of national accord, Prime Minister Faiz Saraj took over, he was so powerless that he basically only managed to secure his symbolic authority by co-opting the various militias around Tripoli.
1: When the unity government prime minister, so the head of the GNA, Fayez Sarraj, took over, he was forced to essentially co-opt already functioning and strong militias in the city, um, in Tripoli particularly, in order to exercise any any sense of control. These militias were not going to give up arms uh, and and sort of bow down to a to a higher authority in terms of police force or uh, or even army, and he was not going to be able to you know keep them in check without bringing them under the wing of of the GNA, which is which is what he did, which is why you have for example the airport, the only functioning airport prior to, to most recent clashes. Is run by giant militia. You have um, other important institutions such as the central bank that are being protected again by a giant militia. Um, you have pockets, you know, in Tripoli. Each pocket in in Tripoli is controlled by a different militia. It's run differently. The rules, I suppose, of engagement are a bit different. Um, and and that was the only way that Siraj could could keep. Some element of like calm and, and security. Yeah, so Faiz and
0: Siraj is basically the guy who runs after the parade, and when he sees it turning left, he yells, "Turn left, turn left!" And when he sees it turning right, he yells, "Turn right!" And he's like, "I'm I'm in charge."
1: Yeah, basically.
0: And you know, it, it kind of the thing you said about rules of engagement being different. It, it always boggles my mind that like when I speak to relatives in Tripoli. They're telling me, like, oh, um, that neighbourhood, they're, they're under the control of, the, you know, Hunewa, who's a, who's a warlord. And that one is under the control of Kikli. That yeah. one's under the control of Bugra. A lot of them have very yeah. weird animal nicknames. Yeah. <laughs> and-
1: it's funny as well because you have, for example, you have certain areas that never have power cuts because the person who's in charge of the militia that's in control of that area is, is also in control of the power plant that supplies electricity and so they never get any power cuts whilst the rest of
0: Tripoli gets rolling power cuts for sometimes 10 hours at a time yeah
1: so you could be living in the same city and be living completely different experiences dependent on who's who's in control at the time
0: that basically brings us to today when Khalifa Haftar is um, sat on the outskirts of Tripoli Um, he launched his attempt to conquer the capital about a week ago. He's uh, been broadcasting his intention to conquer the capital for years. The first time was 2014 when he ordered the GNC to disband. He's now like the the relationship between Siraj and the militias is kind of the same relationship between him and the House of Representatives in the East that he'll, you know, announce a military campaign and then the House of Representatives will be like, oh yeah, we, we told him to do that despite often having received no prior notice. So he he's the authority unto himself, um, and he shocked many of his own backers by deciding to try and take the capital just two weeks before UN brokered peace talks. Uh, he launched it whilst the UN's he launched it whilst the UN Secretary General was visiting Tripoli, which was basically a slap in the face to the UN as an institution, um, and just broadcasting how little he fears international approbation because, you know, what's gonna happen at the worst, they're gonna put out a statement slapping his wrist. And in fact, Russia and France have uh, played hardball in the UN over the last sort of week, 10 days, and blocked most statements which named him specifically or named the LNA. Um, so, you know, Haftar is attacking the capital and you have this weird scenario where the UN is calling on both sides to exercise restraint. And there's, there's just generally, a worrying resignation by the world that, you know, this is going to have to be resolved by war and there's no other way. Um, when, as we know, war very rarely resolves anything. So, we're publishing a few things on the Arab Tyrant Manual website. You can find them at arabtyrantmanual.com. You can find Nadine on Twitter at Nadine Dahan, and links to her work and her profile will be in the description of the podcast. We also have some additional content about the role of social media in the libyan conflict and you can listen to that on our patreon exclusively um, so that's only available to our backers patreon.com slash kawakibi link is in the description again and we'll see you next week for another interesting episode thank you for being here nadine
1: thank you for having me
0: and thanks to khulud for editing our apparent manual podcast is a project of kawakibi foundation
1: يا مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تألف ويا
0: زمانا سيأتي يمحو الزمان المزيف
1: يا مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تألف ويا زمانا سيأتي التي يمحو الزمان المزيف